Thanks for listening to the River City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church community and how you can be a part, visit us online at therivercitychurch.org. Well, good morning again. Welcome. Uh, For those who don't know, my name is Damien, and just really glad that you are with us on this October morning. Uh, It's been a wonderful October so far of uh, not nearly as cold as it normally gets, and we're turning our heat on for the first time in here, so bear with us as it's slowly warming up, and uh, cuddle up next to the person next to you. Um, All right, so hey, uh, speaking of cuddling up next to each other in the month of October, uh, at the beginning of this month, my wife Nancy and I celebrated 16 years of marriage, and... uh, you know, uh, I just, man, she just makes marriage easy. You know, it's just like, I married someone that just, her middle name is Grace, and it just, ma- she just makes marriage easy. And I joke around a lot of times with people saying that I did all of the work on the front end, I did the hard work on the front end, and now I'm reaping what I sowed. So for those of you that don't know our, our love story is I met Nancy when I was in Bible school, and I was, the moment I met her, actually met her at Walmart, uh, she's talking to some other friend, great, great things happen at Walmart, and um, and I was just like head, just like crazy about her, and just like, um, so I went home and actually told my roommates, like, I think I met the girl I'm going to marry, like, and I never talked like that, I was just like so, like, just awestruck, and just like, what is this, and anyway, but those that know the story, for years, the feeling was not mutual, for, in fact, like, a long time, the feeling was not mutual, two and a half years at time at Bible school, the feeling was not mutual. I told her multiple times I felt and turned down and turned down over and over again. Um, so that was pretty hard. Um, and so I, I encourage uh, single guys that are trying to date people, I say, my, what I learned is I somehow had to eliminate her options. Um, and so... <laughs> So just through happenstance, we, we happened, I mean, honestly, divine hand of God, we, we both ended up being missionary associates to, the, to Kingston, Jamaica, working on the same property. A year and a half after graduating Bible college, we both end up on the same exact property there in Kingston, Jamaica, and there we were helping these missionaries start this, turn this old hotel into a children's home taking kids in from the streets of Kingston, majority, uh, into our home. And so uh, my responsibility was like over the property, over seeing, like fixing things and painting and, and cleaning things up. And Nancy was to be uh, the first house mom to these kids. And so we had been there for a while and prepared this place. And I remember like yesterday, that first day that the first group of kids, we had the approval, we had everything in place to get the first 12 kids that come onto the property and, and live there with us and just the excitement that we had and the excitement even the kids had. And, and in that first group of, of kids was this little girl named Sarah. And her picture's up on here on the screen here. Sarah, when Sarah came to us at, at this age, uh, just about three months before that, she was found wandering the streets of Kingston alone. And uh, the police found her and picked her up and had no idea who her parents were, had no idea where she came from, how long she had been there. And so as you see Sarah, she was very pulled back, very withdrawn from others, just a, just a heaviness that she had on her, a lot of her young years of just what she experienced. And she was, didn't interact with the others, and she would get into to messes and the trouble of trying to get attention. As you see this one here, we all have pictures of kids like that getting into to baby powder. That's a nice clean mess she made. In fact, quite often at night, she did not sleep well at night. She would be in her crib and in the middle of the night, uh, open up her diaper, take what was in there, paint herself, paint the wall, paint the crib. 
and it, it went on for like a long time. And I remember one night being down there at the house, uh, at, the, at the home where the, the kids were staying and Nancy was their house mom. And I, and I see Nancy like cleaning this mess, nasty mess up for like the third or fourth time and still having love and compassion for this hurting little girl. And I was like, that girl has got to be the mother of my children one day, right? Like, <laughs> um, it just like made me fall even like more in, in love with her and, and just this, this care that she had for her. And so um, to make a long story boring is somehow over this time of living in Jamaica, um, the scales from Nancy's eyes just fell off. And she saw the glory that was before her. Um, <laughs> And uh, somehow there, while we were in Kingston, Jamaica, working on this home, she, in fact, fell head over heels for me, which I'm sure not, not sure about because her head has always been over her heels, but she still fell in love with me head over heels. You were here last week. You got that. All right. None of you guys were here last week. All right. So, um, no, so, but, um, so I tell this story because uh, there's, there's this is fun to as we've just been like celebrating our, our years of marriage and fun to look back and, and tell our love story and how crazy it is of getting engaged there in Jamaica and, and all that. But the biggest reason I tell you this is about uh, this, this idea of adoption. As we've been going through the, the book of Galatians, we come to the end of chapter three and go into chapter four, which I really wish that they did not put that number right in between these passages we're gonna look at today. Like I feel like it almost like breaks up the, the flow there when you put that big four right there. Um, that's for the Bible nerds in the room. But anyway, so, but we see this theme of adoption. We see this theme of adoption and I wanna camp out a little bit there of like this, this theme of adoption and, and even the, the theme of, of fatherhood of God. And that's going to weave into our message here today. And for some of us, when I say that word, the, the fatherhood of God, of seeing God as our heavenly father, some of you, we're, we're, the, like that's nowhere on your radar to think of God as your father. Others of you that like excites you in your heart, while possibly others in this room or those listening online, it like terrifies you to think of God as a father because of maybe our, our own experiences or our own experiences with our earthly father. But, and then yet others are just kind of apathetic towards it. We don't, we don't really know how to wrap our mind around this thought. I love this, uh, this quote from uh, J.I. Packer, a great author who wrote the, the work called Knowing God. Really encourage you to check it out. And he, and he asks this question. He says, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? If, I, if we could just stop and think, and I know some of us don't come from church background. Maybe you're new here, checking this out, and you're like, okay, what would you say a Christian is? How do I describe what a Christian is and, and what they are? And he goes, he goes like this. He says, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. That is just like, we're going to unpack, this is just beautiful. If a God is our father, what if that was the description we used as a Christian, as a believer, as the foundation that we realize the fact that we are sons and daughters of the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe? Like that just like, I mean, you, we can't even fully wrap our mind around it. So let's just jump right into our text. I'm going to read for quite a bit Galatians 3, 23, all the way through chapter 4, verse 7, all right? Hang with me. Here we go. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. 
So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now this faith has come and we are no longer under a guardian. You can unpack this, just stick with me, all right? So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there's male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Though he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts and the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So awesome. So much in this. We could spend another month just on this passage right here. But you might have noticed on this journey that we've been taking through Galatians that Paul is unpacking some of the richest Christian doctrine that we have of like these, these things. And it's almost like Paul is like, he starts and he keeps on building it higher and higher and higher. Let me tell you how good this is. Let me keep on going and bringing this. And it's like each chapter unfolds with this new fresh revelation of how amazing the work that Jesus did on the cross is for us. First, he starts. He starts with the doctrine of, of redemption, that we have been purchased from our sin and removed the, the, the penalty of sin, right? And the doctrine of justification, that we had no righteousness of our own. We were sinful. We were on a way to destructive path. We could not gain our own righteousness by any good works that we did. But Christ comes, and he imputes. He counts it towards us. He reckons us correct and he gives us his righteousness he does not stop it just like keeps going all right you are justified you are you are you are redeemed and doesn't stop there he builds it and he's like we're going higher we're going deeper we're going to give you the doctrine of adoption that you are not just saved from sin you are saved to sonship and daughtership wow I'm telling you, like if we get, I'm, that's why this, this idea is so big and lofty and so like other world to think that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. And that's why I'm so excited to share this. These past few weeks, we have drilled home over and over again that this idea of justification, that you were born unrighteous, that we, because we are descendants of Abraham, of Abraham, him also, but also Adam. We are descendants of Adam and the sin that is in our lives that we are unrighteous. And there's nothing we can do to be made right with God. No amount of following rules, no amount of following the law, no amount of doing enough good can justify us before a holy God. 
it's kind of the overarching theme that we see in Galatians is like, because if you remember, they're, they're debating about like, what about these Old Testament laws and rules and rituals? And are those going to make us right? And do we have to add those two? We've been talking about this, right? And so we have this, this topic of what do we do with all of that first part of the Bible and all those laws and rules that were given to Moses and how do they apply to us today? So if you back up before we read in Galatians uh, three nineteen, Paul actually asks another rhetorical question like we looked at last week. And he says, why then was the law given? Why was the law given? If the law could not justify us, if the law could not make us right before God and put us in the right place, why did God bother giving the law to Moses in the first place, right? So he's asking this question. And I don't have like a ton of time to spend on this, but I think it's important to point this out. We've talked about this in other series, talked about this at other times, and just kind of refresh our memory of why the law was given three points of why we have the Old Testament law laid out for us. The first one, the law was given to distinguish Israel from the other nations around them. If you remember, actually our kids today are starting a series and learning about Exodus and Moses leading the people out of 400 years of slavery into to the promised land. So God is taking these people that have been slaves for 400 years and he says, I'm going to make you different. I'm going to make you distinct. You've been slaves. You've not been in charge of your own calendar. You've not been in charge of your own life. I want to show you how to be different to the nations around you. So this is what you will wear. This is what you don't wear. This is what you eat. This is what you don't eat. This is what day you can work. This is what day you don't work. This is the seasons in which you can party. And these are the seasons that you don't party. Like you even had it like that down of like, this is party season. This is not party season, right? A lot of awesome stuff in the Old Testament. And God is setting them apart. Because they're going and going to live amongst these other nations. And he wants them to be a light to the nations around them of like, these are people that are marked by God. Really quick, as we've been studying Galatians, God still has a plan and a purpose with his people in Israel. They have not, we haven't, the church has not replaced them. We are grafted in together. God's promise that he made to Abraham is still to be fulfilled to them. And that's why last night, my wife, Nancy, praying for the nation of Israel again, that God would, again, remove their skills from their eyes. All right, second reason is the law was to restrain evil. Again, I've said it over and over. We were born with a propensity towards sin, towards evilness. And if we were like without God's grace, without God's rule and order us over us, we don't even realize how much he holds of grace. And we, if we were to take our sinful nature and it just go about as much, we would be no better than Stalin and Hitler. Like the, the, if we were just led to, to follow our own evil desires because this thing called the flesh, it has absolutely no bounds. It wants to continue to go and do and seek self-pleasure. And if God simply stood back, this world would look so much terrible than it is. It would look awful if he was to stand back. So God has established this, this, this means of common grace through his law. He has established this of like setting some things, the law written, but also the law in our hearts of knowing when we have done things that break the heart of God. So I was trying to think of like, how do I show, how, what is an example for how like the, the, the law actually restrains us from taking things to the limit? And then yesterday, as I was coming home from driving out in the country on the other side of Randall Road, on Main Street, the speed limit's a lot higher. I just had a great conversation with Marco about the 
the adoption process and about how God has adopted us. My mind's elsewhere, and I cross over Randall Road, and I'm still on Main Street, and the speed limit dropped to 30. And then behind me is red and blue lights flashing, pulling me over, right? And saying, he tells me that I've been going 42 and a 30, right? Awesome way to start your Saturday morning, right? But I was like, that's exactly it. Speed limits. How many of us, like me, if the speed limit is 30, I do 35. The speed limit's 40, I do 45. Come on, no lying, you're in church. This isn't a sermon about speeding. I just confessed my sins to you, right? We all know, we, we know the speed limit, and that's like, okay, that's how much I can break the law. That's how much further I can go beyond the speed limit, right? Okay, so if I'm already doing 42 in a 30, remember, I'm praying, I'm just thinking about my sermon, that's why I did it, that's why, right? But um, anyway, so if I'm already doing 42 in a 30, why not do 95 in a 30? Well, well, you know, like we, we set these parameters, we set these rules just a little bit to break the rule, right? And so that's what the law is doing. It's like, hey, you're not going to, he knows that we're not going to follow it perfectly and precisely, but it's like this, this, this line there of like, hey, your, 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 proclam- your, your desire of doing more, it just kind of is like this, this curving, this curbing of your lust and of your desires and of these things you know is wrong because like you're going to always stretch it. You're going to always push it. A little bit more, but he's like, I gotta lay these down. All right? Martin Luther says it this way. He says it much better than I did, all right? He says, As a wild beast is tied to keep him from running amok, so the law brittles mad and furious men to keep him from running wild. The law actually holds us back from totally destroying ourselves. Because these things are written, but they're also written in our hearts, and they are in governmental forms, like that they're laid out of what our lives should be like. The law doesn't keep us from sinning, but in some sense, it kind of curbs us from taking the full measures of sins and kind of restricts it, and that's a good thing. And, by the way, the police officer only gave me a warning. Thank you, Jesus. So uh, that is grace, that the favor of that when I do break the law, the Holy Spirit comes in and warns me and says, hey, don't keep doing this way. So Martin Luther goes on to say that, the, that this was exactly that, that the law usher is meant to usher in and lead us to the grace of Jesus. It's meant to lead us into the usher of Jesus, of who he is. If you open up, the, the most famous part of the law is Exodus 20, right? We read about the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten, the big popular ones. And if we read those and we go, yeah, that's easy. That's simple, right? Like, I don't know if we're fully understanding what it is there, exactly what it's asking of us. Because then Jesus comes along and he goes, I want to bring this to the next level. The, the Ten Commandments say, do not murder. And he says, hey, have you ever had angry thoughts about someone? Have you ever had malicious thoughts? Have you ever been so, so annoyed with someone that that is the same thing and having anger that just stirs up inside you is the same as murdering someone? And he says, oh, you, you've never committed adultery. You've never, you never cheated on your wife or your husband. Okay. Have you ever had lustful thoughts? And Jesus just has this way of like leveling the playing field of like, hey, we all come short of the heart and intent that God has for us. John Calvin says this. You guys are like, man, what is Damien? He's like Martin Luther, John Calvin, J.R. Packer. Okay, all right. He's just like, where, where is he at in his doctrine now? Just, just joking. That's for the Bible nerds again. All right. So God awakens us through the law and leads us to acknowledge our 
desperate condition. It is it that, that the law, that the law right there, was added in order that we might realize that God is right to condemn us all and give us our minds no rest from anxious, torturous thoughts in order that our despair might lead us to find hope in his promise. The purpose of the law is to skin, usher in this grace of like, we see our shortcoming, we see our failures, we see how we don't measure up, and it leads us to this point of desperation of coming to God and saying, God, I need you, I need a savior, I need someone to come in my place and fulfill the law because I cannot. But the enemy comes around every single time and he twists and turns what God says. And he lies. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. That's how Jesus describes him. So he comes along and instead he takes the law and he says, let it be absolute despair and condemnation for never measuring up. Instead of leading us to a place of despair that we go, God, I need a savior and find a place of desperation. God's intent for the law was that we might remain, not that we would remain in despair, that we would come to a desperation and call out him as our savior. And instead of trying to be made right in our own works, and our own actions, and our own things, that we come and we say, God, we've come short, and thank you for the righteousness of Jesus that was placed upon me. Amen. So, Paul's making it clear, the law has a purpose. The law has a place, and it's pointing towards something. It has a role. It's been pointing towards Jesus and towards his fulfillment. Look at verse 23 in chapter 3. As we walk through this, you'll see that um, this, this passage is literally, it's, it's littered with references to time. Littered with references to time. It says, it says again, now before. Now before faith came. It begins with that. You'll notice like, now before faith came. Again, a time reference. Both these references repeated over and over again. Now before faith came. Verse 23. Imprisoned until the faith coming would be revealed. Skip down to 24. Until Christ came. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Chapter 4, verse 1, as long as he was a child, as a child, until the date set by his father, when we were children, when the fullness of time had come, no longer slaves but sons. He's making this very clear over and over. He's saying, now, before, until, but now, no longer, long as, and when. He's making it very clear that something happened. There was this moment, a drawn a line in the sand that makes it before and after, right? Before Christ, after Christ, and what he had done. And he's showing this, that, that some, the thing that happened, the thing that changed it all is the incarnation of Christ coming, being born of a virgin, and being grown up, and starting his ministry, and his crucifixion, and his resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, that Jesus came and lived among us and taught us and showed us what the kingdom of God looked like. And though he was falsely accused and put to death on a cross and died, he was put in a grave and the grave could not hold him because he was sinless. And three days later, he rose up from that grave taking after he punched the devil in the face and took care of that, right? And then he goes up to heaven to prepare a place for you and I. This is that moment that changed everything. This is that shifting thing that he is saying, before, until, now, when that time would come, something had happened. Something 
had changed. It changed everything. It changed the, it changed, Jesus changed the way that we view God. He changed the way that we see God. He changed it and saw that we see him as our heavenly father, Abba Father, he says. I'm trying to think of another way of like a shift that has happened in some of our lifetimes. Of like there was one time that it was this way and now it is a different way. The best one I could think of is when you used to travel and go to airports, it used to be a different way. When I was madly in love with Nancy in Bible school and she needed me to come pick her up at the airport, I got there early and I went in and I waited at the gate that she was coming out at, right? Those days are no longer, our kids do not know that experience of waiting, of walking someone to the gate, hugging and kissing them goodbye at the gate, or being there and greeting them like every 90s movie with big bow of flowers or chasing them down, right? Every 90s romantic film always has like, how'd they get in there? Because there was once a time that you could go all the way up to the gate. But then something happened. 9-11, along with some other things, made it that that is no longer possible. So there was a shift. There was a change. There was something distinctly different. And this is like, that's what Jesus, like something that was this way, then this change happened and everything is different. All right, these last, last four verses in Galatians chapter three are full of Jesus. It says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For you, for all, <clears throat> for all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Those of you that have been baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. This is like, a big deal of what Paul is writing here. He does this as one of his favorite metaphors of this idea of putting on Christ. It's found in Galatians, it's found in Ephesians, it's found in Romans, and it's found in Colossians of like that we take on Christ. And, and he's making this reference what many uh, Bible studies and all this other stuff, theologians would say, that commentaries would say about this is that he's making a reference to this thing called toga virilis. Togavirilis, now before you get that confused with James Belushi in Animal House, I'm thinking toga parties, right? It's not exactly that one. It's not that toga, right? But not, not even Togavirilis that I looked up another description and I found out that their super fancy, expensive dress shoes are called Togavirilis. It's not that Togavirilis, but Togavirilis is a, is a Roman tradition that young, a ceremony that marks a boy's transition from being a boy to being a man. And depending on, you know, it, it would fall in the ages between 14 to 17 years old, depending on the, the boy's wisdom, me- mental capacity, maybe his physical strength, the father would decide when he is a grown man. And so on the, choose, on, on the morning of the father's choosing, the young man would discard his childish toga, the one that marked him as a child, and they would dress him in a white tunic, and the father would gather a crowd of influential men around him, and they would escort him down to, <clears throat> down to have his name registered as an official Roman citizen. So now he's taking off the, putting on this new, He's marked and he becomes a citizenship. And this is like, this is of the father's choosing. So Paul is making this reference of saying that you have grown up. You have taken off that old. You are putting on something new. And you are a grown, when you go from a, a child 
to a grown son of your father, that relationship is different, right? That relationship is different. And it's really important that we see that, that those who are in Christ, look, he sums it up, what a Christian is. Christian is those who have been baptized into Christ that by putting on Christ, who's one with Christ. He's showing us what it looks like to be a Christian. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. So we talked about this, this importance of seeing ourselves as children of God. It's the best way that we can describe a Christian is to see that God is our father. And what he is saying here, how do we know that we are children of God through faith? How do we know that we're taking on this new thing? And he says in the verse before, it says, because you no longer have a guardian. Track, follow with me. That now faith has come in Galatians 3.25, we no longer are under a guardian. We no longer have this guardian. This, we don't, uh, N.T. Wright says it, a babysitter. We no longer have a babysitter. Because this, this, this word guardian here is translated like disciplinarian, someone who is constantly, the law, constantly whipping us, constantly prodding us, constantly dis- disciplining us into greater obedience. He says, but we're no longer, under, no longer under a guardian. For Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith says this, N.T. Wright says, and this thing about babysitter says, God is no longer our guardian or babysitter who looks after us until we have grown up. He is no longer our judge who condemns and imprisons us through the law. He is no longer our tutor who restrains us and chastises us. But now we see that God is our father. In Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. We don't fear him, dreading the punishment we deserve. We love him. Wow, guys, this just changes our perspective of God. Like the full array of God. Is God to be feared? Yes, for sure. The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord, right? Is God our judge? Yes, he is our judge. Is God, is there punishment for sin? Yes, there is. But now, as we're understanding this, that we have taken on Christ, that the judgment that was due us is not applied to us because Jesus took our place. And that we are free from this, our punishment of sin. We don't have a punishment of sin because of what he did. So for those of us that are believers, we don't fear God as our judge that's looking to zap us and punish us. He is our father. He is our father and loves us. Even though we are prisoners that deserve execution, he because of what he has done, we, we're no longer, he has changed that relationship, that moment, what Jesus did, changed it from that day forth. We are no longer minors under the restraints of a tutor. We are sons and daughters. We are heirs of the kingdom. And this is like, I keep on getting this revelation of like, you know, I always think of like, I'm a child of God, like I'm a little baby and he's just holding me. Like, no, I'm a, I'm a grown child of God. And he has works and purposes and plans for me. And I'm not just like, just, just held in his hand. No, he is with me. He is, he's empowered me to be part of his citizenship. Just like we see the father bringing him down, putting a robe on him and saying, you are now a citizen. We are now citizens of a different world, of the kingdom of God. Yes. He goes on from there and he says, breaks down every social background that there is possible. He says, now there is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free. Listen, this is a time there's slaves. And it's common to have a slave. He says, there's no difference. 
between being slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. We all are equal. Listen, there is this amazing thing. John Stott says this way, there's an equal need for salvation. It's equal in our, Ill, our inability to deserve it, and it's equal in the fact that God offers it to us freely in Christ. That all of those things that, that marked us for so long are now gone. We're just neither slave nor free. When you think of it, every single society, even our own society, has its own caste and class and systems. We always have a way of, of, of marking people into different categories. For them, they were marking some as being circumcised, some as not being circumcised, some of wealth, some of privilege, some of education. But he's saying in the kingdom of God, there is no room for snobbery, right? <laughs> it's forbidden because we all come equal to the place of Christ. It's not, it's not prohibited to, to think of yourself higher above another. There's no distinction of race. There's no distinction of social, economical background, of education. We all are equal. We're transformed and we're created into this beautiful community that God has called us to represent of what the future kingdom of God would be. And we look around the, the people that come in through these doors at River City Church and like now we're the body of Christ and like, like this, this motley crew of different people, all different backgrounds, different situations. And I love it. I love how Rick McKinley, a pastor in Portland, Oregon, says he refers to the church as this beautiful mess. A beautiful mess. People from all different messy backgrounds, and God turns it into something beautiful. All right. So we see that something changed. There was a time and a moment that the law that was set up for good purposes, that it all changed by this relationship with him. And then Galatians 4 says this, 4, 4 through 7 says, when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. Ladies, do not get offended by the masculine terms here. Actually, if you were to muscle, if you were to, to muzzle Paul and have him use these other words, we would miss the context because in this context, the son was the heir. The son was the one that, that got all the privileges of it. So don't be offended by not saying daughter there. He's making a point home of like the son receives all the benefits that the father has. So you are now included in that. There is no male and female. We all are sons as like receiving this inheritance, all right? Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave but a child of God. Since you are his child, God has made you also his heir. When we come to this place of seeing that we are loved and cared for by a father, it changes everything. It changes every single experience that we had told you earlier about Sarah and how Sarah came and she had just hurt and pain in her life from what she, the trauma that she experienced at a young age. And when she came to the home at first, she was distant. She was far off. She would not allow others to even, when they tried to extend love, she would not receive it. But over time, the love given to her, the care given to her, conditionally, unconditionally, consistently in her life, those walls started to break down as she received 
the love of God. And she went from being a girl that was orphaned and uncared for to a sense of security and stability. Because like, she got some pictures of her there, like the joy that she now has. Her and the other kids, when they first came that first two weeks, every time we had a meal, they would eat as much as they could possibly eat and put as much food in their pocket. Because they, didn't, they weren't used to getting another meal. And they would store it away. And, be, and then it took over a week for them to realize, I'm going to get fed again. I don't have to store this up. And over time, of, 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 I'm, going to say, I'm going to brag on Nancy of her unconditional love of caring for this little girl when she was going through a super difficult time. She starts to receive love, receive care. And her life has changed and she has such love and joy and peace. And now she's a grown girl off in college. It's amazing of what the transformation of the love can do through us humans. Now imagine what your heavenly father wants to do for you when you experience his love. A perfect love that casts out all fear. He wants to rebuild that, those things that are hurt, the transformation that brings that the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe becomes your heavenly father. Yes, babies, sing it out. We need a heavenly father. <laughs> they want it, right? They want a heavenly father. These babies want to be held. The father, God speaks to the struggles of fear in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. And I think, as we talked about last week, one of the biggest areas of fear and struggle that we have is in this area of sanctification. By sanctification, I mean this process of getting the junk out, the renewing of minds, the sin losing its power and control over us. So we have this, we have this, this, this struggle because sometimes we, 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 Paul's telling us that you're adopted as his children and that God is your father and you're part of his family and your heirs and you're, 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 you're more like adult children as you approach your parent. But yet we don't feel like we deserve to come before our father. We feel like we come short in our area of cleaning ourselves up. And because every single one of us, I would assume, the majority of us have something deep inside of us that wants to make our earthly father proud. Even men that I've sat in circles with that I know that their dad does not, he's made a mess. He's messed everything up. He's been totally absent and all this. There's still something inside the heart of a man that wants to hear their father say, I am proud of you and I love you. And I would say that that translates to a deeper issue of each one of us desires to hear our heavenly father say, I love you and I'm proud of you. And he is. He says, I love you and I'm proud of you. But the enemy loves to come and lie and twist and distort what God is saying. And he makes us feel like that God is only proud of me if I've been sinless all week long or all day long or if I've been perfect in every way. And the way you find victory in the area of sanctification, the way you find victory in this area of struggling in these areas of these sins that you keep on tangling yourself up in is to see yourself as a son. Because a son that has a healthy relationship with his father desires to reflect who his father is. We see that all the time. How many times do you see a little boy with a hammer in the garage trying to do it because he saw dad having a hammer in the garage? He doesn't know what he's doing, but he knows dad does this and he wants to reflect his father. 
Last week, my oldest son downloaded a new video game on his Switch, and he couldn't wait to show it to me. I don't even love video games that much, but he loved downloading the old, the old, 64, old Nintendo to play the old games because he wants me to delight in the things that he delights in, and he's waiting for me to play it with him. How much more our Heavenly Father wants to be, and of course, I, because the Father wants to be invited in, and God wants to be invited into your life. Dads love to be involved in the kids' lives. The Father, our Heavenly Father, is absolutely holy. He's absolutely holy. And so since he's holy and we want to have this healthy relationship with him, it causes and puts a heart inside of us to pursue holiness. Because we want to be like our Father. We don't fear him. We don't fear his judgment. We want to reflect him well. And it's not to obtain our own salvation, but it is a response to our salvation. It's a response that our Father has made us known. And I know, like I said earlier, this whole idea of God, the fatherhood of God is absolutely terrifying to you. And I would encourage you to to press into that terror. Because on the other side of it, you might find redemption with your earthly father, and you might not. I can't promise that you will. But you will come to a place of redemption of seeing your father as one that is gentle and loving and cares for and has not abandoned you and has not left you and he's a God that is there and cares for you. Amen. The Bible talks a lot about having faith like a child. And last night there was this amazing moment in our house and these are moments you can't like prepare for a sermon. But we were playing a game, a family game together and our youngest Jude was sitting, on, sitting next to my wife Nancy and his, his love language is physical touch. And so she was tickling, t- tickling the back, like slowly like tickling up and down the back. And he leaned over to Nancy and said, you know what I was thinking the other day? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God to tickle my back. <laughs> she said, really? He goes, yeah, I think he'd be really good at that. How beautiful is that? That's how God wants you. <laughs> You're not afraid. He's not fearful. That He's a father that wants to tickle your back. That's how much he loves you. What if we could have that faith that God is, he's not saying, don't run away from me. Come close to me, my son. Come close. Don't let these sins, my, if you have called upon the name of Jesus, your sin is taken care of. So my question is, do you relate to God as your father? Do you relate to God as your father? I know these guys have been up here for a while. I got one more quote from J.R. Packer. <laughs> Uh, He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thoughts of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that promotes and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook in life, it will mean he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught us, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old and distinctly, and that is distinctly Christian and opposite of merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. What he's saying you don't have to have all the perfect doctrine, all the perfect, you don't have to be a preacher, you don't have to be a Bible teacher, you don't have to be a small group leader. He's saying, 
what makes you, and I'm not saying you're not a Christian if your primary image of, of God is the Father, but he's saying, hey, if you, if you want to step out of the shallows into the deep, come and see God as your Father. Come and see him, one who meets you where you are and loves you and cares for you. Because the relationship with him as your Father changes everything. Changes everything. Would you guys stand with me? Lord Jesus, I know that some in this room, Lord, this idea of you as their father excites. Lord, and I ask that you you would add to that excitement right now by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would bring them to new levels, Lord. Lord, I know that there's others that are here, those that are listening online, that this idea of you as father they can't quite wrap their mind around it. They've never seen you that way. They've only heard of you as judge, one that punishes, one that's angry at their sin. And Lord, your holiness has caused that. Lord, your, your holiness causes a sep- us to be, you to be separate from our sin. But Lord, you loved us and you cared for us so much that you sent your one and only son to retrieve all your other sons to make each one of us right standing because you completely fulfilled the law and you gave your life in our place and took our judgment and gave us, Lord Jesus, your righteousness. Lord, but you didn't stop there. You called us your sons and daughters. Now, Lord, there's no words I can use to express this anymore, but Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do the work that only you can do in this moment, Lord that you would reveal deep in our hearts, Lord, that you are our Father and you just want to be involved in our lives. You want to be asked to play video games. You want to be asked to tickle our back. (laughs) Lord, you want to just be in our lives. So God, I ask that we would just do that as a people, Lord, invite you into the everyday, mundane, everyday life. The difficult parts, the good parts, the challenging parts, the happy parts, the joyful parts you would be invited in every part of it. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the River City Church podcast. We'd love to hear how God is using River City Church to minister and impact lives. If you have a story to share of how God is moving in your life, send an email to amen at therivercitychurch.org. If you'd like to support our mission financially so we can continue to share messages just like these, you can give online at therivercitychurch.org slash give.